My parents were 60s people. My dad, who grew up in Queens, went to the University of Virginia for a single year before dropping out to become a civil rights worker. He met my mom in Atlanta, where they both worked on an underground newspaper called The Great Speckled Bird. If you want to needle my mom, you can say she was a hippie. She'll get a stern look and reply, we weren't hippies, we were activists. In Atlanta, my dad was, among other things, a member of the October League, part of the wide universe of radical left-wing splinter groups that emerged when the idealism of the 60s exploded into the harder ideological shrapnel of the 70s. He talks about those days as a time when righteousness bled into farce. For example, because the group was monitored by the FBI, its meetings were held in secret locations. A car would come and pick people up and deliver them to the chosen, undisclosed spot. One day, the group rented a hotel meeting room for one of its secret assemblies. When the car delivering the members pulled up to the hotel, they looked up and saw a message on the hotel's large overhead sign, Welcome, October League. Still, the commitment necessary to be a true radical in 1970s Georgia was not inconsiderable. They were beaten up by rednecks while trying to sell them the communist newspaper outside of factory gates, an example of the perils of overestimating your audience. The October League members were themselves required to get factory jobs so as to be embedded in the proletariat and help them organize. This tactic was in contrast to their counterparts who split off to form the Weather Underground, which was more inclined toward bombing than labor organizing. My mom worked at a Sophie May peanut brittle factory. To this day, the smell of peanut brittle turns her stomach. My dad worked at an Nabisco factory. He has many happy memories of eating the world's freshest Ritz cracker right as it emerged from the oven, and of carting home free boxes of canned beef stew that had been damaged by coworkers purposely slamming the boxes on the ground. He was the type of guy who would read a book while on the line at the factory, but the work suited him. The Nabisco factory had a union. Not unusual for the time, the union was racist. In August 1972, after a black employee was unjustly fired from the plant, 250 of the Nabisco workers walked out in a wildcat strike. That group was made up of almost all the black workers, along with a handful of white workers, including my dad. The union, long controlled by whites, refused to support the strike. But after three weeks of picketing, the company agreed to rehire all the striking workers and make at least some gestures toward addressing discrimination in the plant. My dad ended up working at Nabisco for five years. They would always say, do what we want or we'll close the plant and move elsewhere, he remembers. In August 2021, almost half a century after that wildcat strike, Nabisco workers across the country went on strike again, trying desperately to hold on to a minimal middle-class lifestyle. But the Atlanta Nabisco factory was not among the strikers. It had closed for good just months earlier. Its parent company moved those jobs overseas. Some things never change. I grew up hearing stories of the Great Speckled Bird and the Civil Rights Movement in the way that some kids grow up hearing about their dad's high school football games. It instilled in me a consciousness of the need to fight to make things better. Later, I fell into journalism, attracted more by its promise of a platform from which to yell about who society's villains are than by any sort of literary inclinations. Being a serviceable writer was also my only marketable skill. It was either journalism or back to the kitchen at the pizza restaurant. I moved to New York City, and in 2008, caught on with Gawker.com, which was very much my kind of publication. Gawker gave us, its wild-eyed and confrontational writers, a combo deal that was hard to find. 
It was widely read, and it offered near-total freedom to write whatever we wanted. It was great. Gawker became the devilish conscience of the New York media, vaguely disreputable but honest. It was the place that would publish what others wouldn't, and would say the things that others thought but felt constrained from saying by fear of professional fallout. It was anarchist journalism at its finest. For the type of writer who aspired not to work at the New York Times, but rather to gripe about why the New York Times was a bunch of dweebs, it was the best possible place to be. While others at Gawker wrote most of the gossip and scoops that brought in big traffic, I coasted along, indulging my passion for class war. I published letters from death row inmates and ran a 40-week-long series of first-person stories from unemployed people after the 2008 recession. I published letters from employees at Amazon, Target, and other big companies describing how terrible their workplaces were. And I became Gawker's de facto labor reporter, 